Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Main Man, an interesting story, a very entertaining story, a very long, wonderful adventure. Hello and welcome. This is episode 57 in our series exploring the history of Main Man, the management rights company which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. The Main Man philosophy was to provide financial support that enabled their artists full creative freedom. The management team pioneered outrageous and often controversial promotions and marketing techniques that soon became the benchmark for the decadence and indulgences that are now part of rock folklore. You could go to a place and you could trust that people wouldn't do anything, um, like grass you up to the press. Main Man worked with a diverse range of clients that included Amanda Lear, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Mott the Hoople, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop, Marianne Faithful, David Bowie and Lou Reed. With... Uh... You know, Rano and David, there was, you know, a real uh, simpatico, which is certainly part of the situation I had in the Velvets and was, you know, miles above where I'd been on the Lou Reed, first Lou Reed record, where there was nothing simpatico. In this episode, we're looking at the summer of 1972 when the Ziggy Stardust album was released. Lou Reed was invited by David Bowie to come to London to perform a Friends of the Earth benefit concert and ended up staying to record Transformer with Bowie and Mick Ronson. Iggy Pop spent the summer working on plans for the Raw Power album and David saved Mott the Hoople from disbanding by producing their album All the Young Dudes. All while Bowie and the Spiders from Mars continued their first UK tour, an incredibly busy time for the main man team and their main man Tony DeFries. In recalling the incredible music produced that summer, let's start with Tony's memories of recording Transformer at London's Trident Studios. Lou Reed, who was a former member of the Velvet Underground and its songwriter, had made a solo album for RCA, which was not entirely representative of his talents or his songwriting and didn't do well. When we were in New York in that year, Lou Reed and David met. David was asked to play a Friends of the Earth concert at the Royal Festival Hall in England. It was for the whales. It was about saving the whales. Friends of the Earth were trying to save the whales. They were an early sort of Greenpeace version. They're still in existence. They've struggled very, very hard to get the environmentally conscious humanity to be environmentally conscious, but it's not easy. David agreed to go on, perform, and invited Lou to come and do at least one song with him, and that would have been Waiting for the Man, ideally, on stage as part of this benefit concert. And Lou agreed, and so begins this tale of trouble and success, disaster, and all the other ingredients. This was the first time that Lou had been on stage with David. It was the first time he'd been on stage with Mick Ronson and the Spiders. He was very good as a performer. And then we asked him, and I asked him, and David asked him, if he would like to work with David, with Mick, and with Ken Scott on another solo album. That was the album that became Transformer. 
And that album was successful for lots of different reasons, not least of which was there were two songs on the album, Walk on the Wild Side and Perfect Day, which were so representative of Lou, but also so good as songs, and so well created on that particular recording, they're still being used today. They're being used for many, many different things, and they've been used over and over again. The key element of Walk on the Wild Side was Herbie Flowers playing an astonishing bass line. Now, that album was produced by David and Mick, although ultimately Mick did most of the actual work of arrangement and conducting and managing the production. And Ken Scott acted as the engineer. Herbie Flowers and Mick Ronson had played together on a lot of albums, including Elton John. Mick was on the first version of Mad Men Across the Water, which ultimately that was re-recorded so that it didn't appear on the album of that name. So this is where you begin to see, if you dig a little deeper, that amongst Herbie Flowers and Mick Ronson, there were a host of other musicians. And just to mention some of them, Paul Buckmaster, Rick Wakeman, Mick Wayne, Tim Rennick, Jimmy Page, Nicky Hopkins, Steve Winwood, Jimmy Miller, who was a producer and a musician, Jim Capaldi, Dave Mason, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. And when you look at that list, you see, well, hey, some of those people turned into Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and so on and so on. But this was 1972 when many of these people weren't yet famous. They weren't successful. They were making the best living they could playing sessions. Sessions were better than bands because sessions meant that you always got paid, albeit not very much in today's terms, but a lot then. So if you did enough sessions, you could make quite a healthy income without having to rely on getting bookings for a band, without having to drive around in a van full of instruments and gear and other stuff, and without having to take all the risks of getting to a venue, finding you couldn't get paid, finding there wasn't an audience and so on. Going into a studio meant that you would get paid, and that became the lifeline for an enormous number. I've just cited a few of them, but let's just look at the bands and the albums. And this goes back, not just into 72, but back into the 60s. So we have a list of producers. We have Mickey Most, who I worked with in the 60s, of course, and the 70s. Danny Cordell, American. Shel Tormey, American. Gus Dudgeon, English, and who worked with us in many different ways, over many different recordings. Tony Visconti, likewise. Tony Visconti and Gus Dudgeon learnt an enormous amount from producers like Danny Cordell and Mickey Mouse, because those producers were making hit records before these guys got into the game. They usually came on board as engineers and tape-ops. And it's interesting when you think about a very much later band that I was 
also briefly involved with, Bon Jovi. Now, what's the connection between Bon Jovi, who doesn't get to even be born until much later, <laughs> and these folk that I'm talking about? And the answer's simple. Tony Bon Jovi, who I worked with in the late 70s, had a brother who had a son who, when he was a teenager, was looking for a place to work, and we'd created a studio for Tony called Power Station, Inner Power Station, actually, which was one of the first digital studios, if not the first, actually, in America, in New York. And Tony Bon Jovi said, well, okay, you can come here and be a tape op. And that literally meant switching tapes when necessary, making sure tapes were properly labelled, making sure they were properly sealed back in their boxes, etc., etc., sweeping up the floors, getting the tea, generally a gopher. That's how John Bon Jovi got started. That's how he got to be Bon Jovi. <laughs> so there are strange connections here, and they go a long way back. Now back to England in the 1960s, not, with, not yet the 70s, but in the 60s, the bands that came to perform in England and that were used by these very same musicians that I'm talking about and often worked with the same producers and engineers. So just a small sample of bands that these musicians worked on. And very often you can look at this recording of this band and say, well, hey, there are three or four or five or six of the musicians I've just mentioned all on that recording. And that's true of, for example, I Contina Turner when they came to the UK, B.B. King, Howling Wolf, Muddy Waters, then English bands, Junior's Eyes, Mark Boland, T-Rex. In 69, this group of musicians, some of them, and producers slash engineers, were the Bowie band before Bowie was Bowie, when he was in the Manish Boys. And then they backed him on Space Odyssey, and they became, briefly, the Bowie band. They missed their chance. Rick Wakeman specifically missed his chance to become a spider. He would have been a piano playing and organ playing and keyboard playing spider, but he opted to join Yes. And so he didn't become a spider. And it's a pity he should have become a spider. There you are. You have Led Zeppelin. You have Elton John, Cat Stevens, The Straubs, Yes, Pink Floyd, The Who, Pretty Things, Rolling Stones, Progal Harum. Beatles, The Kinks, Jeff Beck, Rod Stewart, Carly Simon, Hendrix, Clapton, The Yardbirds, Spencer Davis and the group, Traffic Cream, Jefferson Airplane, Joe Cocker and many, 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 many more. That was London between 1964 and the 1970s. And every artist who was in London making records ended up looking at some of these folk and working with them. So here you really have to also think about the engineers. So my list of engineers includes people like Ken Scott, of course, Eddie Kramer, a very important engineer, worked with many different people, Glyn Johns, who did a lot of work with Rolling Stones, for example, and Zeppelin, and there's Andrew, who was his brother. Now, Joe Cocker decided to sing a cover version of A Little Help From My Friends. That was a rearrangement, quite a radical rearrangement of the original, 
Joe used influences from Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles, and the song was recorded by Danny Cordell and Visconti, using a slower tempo than the original, different chords, especially in the middle eight, and lengthy instrumentals. The drums were from Procol Harum's B.J. Wilson, guitar lines from Jimmy Page, organ by Tommy Eyre and backing vocals. And after the song was recorded, Danny Cordell brought it to Paul McCartney, who said, Just mind-blowing, turn the song into a soul anthem, and I was forever grateful for him doing that. When Ringo started performing live after the Beatles broke up, he would end every concert with that song, and particularly the Joe Cocker version of that song, although Ringo didn't really have the voice that Joe Cocker had, for sure. But that's an example of how integrated, if you like, the music scene was in London in 1972, with groups coming from the US to play there, and with the same thing working in reverse, where these same musicians and producers got involved, for example, with Jefferson Airplane and many other American groups going forward, as, lo- as well as Carly Simon, and had hits on both sides of the Atlantic and very often worldwide. Lou had a bunch of songs that he'd worked on some of which I think he'd previously recorded, like Waiting for the Man, and some of which he'd never recorded. So once we'd established which of the songs were going to go on the album, and we'd made arrangements with RCA for a contract that would allow us to produce the album, because Lou Reed was signed directly to RCA at this point, we then began selecting, and this was really what Mick did, was to select... Herbie and Rick Wakeman to participate in the album. So they became, in effect, the band for Lou at that point for that album. But the key elements that have been most recognised are Herbie Flowers' bass line in Walk on the Wild Side. It's a really interesting idea because... Walk on the Wild Side took its name from a book which became a play by an author called Nelson Algren. Nelson Algren was an American playwright and author and Walk on the Wild Side failed miserably as a play. It wasn't that successful as a book. But his more successful play and his most successful book was The Man with the Golden Arm. And that was made into a marvellous movie which won Sinatra, who played the main character, I think his first Oscar. Um, The film itself won an Oscar. And the story was about a crooked card dealer, hence the golden arm, the arm that could always deal a winning hand for the house, not the players. And... That person was also a heroin addict. So the the golden arm had two meanings. One was the ability to trick the cards. And the other, of course, was to shoot heroin. All three of my artists in that era, David, Lou and Iggy, 
were completely fascinated with heroin and with not just the, the drug itself, but the effects of it and the significance of it and the whole, somehow, the fascination, if you like, of taking heroin and using heroin and getting addicted to it and having to overcome the addiction. Now, Lou, I don't think, ever really overcame the addiction. David ultimately did. But the damage, the damage caused... On the one hand, you could say it might have produced great music, great performances, great writing. On the other hand, you could say maybe those all would have happened without it. Not really something you can definitively say, but in this case, it was very much a feature of Lou's recording that he was often not particularly capable of performing. And so we had to work around that. And he also had a aside from his heroin addiction, which was more controlled while he was making this particular record, actually, whilst he was in London, probably lack of access. But he also had um, a habit of bringing a bottle of Southern Comfort or some similar <laughs> to sessions. And very often, Melanie and I had to literally walk him out of the session because he couldn't carry on and couldn't manage so despite all of this we managed to make that album in a matter of three weeks not all sessions were fully attended the musicians were always there Lou was often not there and would come in later and do the vocals but he was also very often connected to it there he and Mick got on musically although they didn't really understand each other because Lou had trouble with Mick's accent, which was very thick Yorkshire, northern accent. And Mick uh, equally wasn't that familiar with Lou's um, very strong New York accent. So they communicated musically. And this is an interesting thing about all these musicians that I've been talking about. They came from very, very different parts of England, Many of them came from America and different parts of America. And yet, if you put a group of musicians who understand their instruments and they understand their place and part in, somehow they're a bit like putting together a bunch of um, mathematicians. They don't need to be able to communicate with each other with words if they can communicate with each other with figures, or in this case with sounds, with chords, with notes. So as long as Ronson could show people what he wanted to do by sitting down and playing on a guitar, on the piano, on a flute, or whatever, Mick was capable of playing pretty much any instrument, so he could make music out of a tabletop if he needed to. And as soon as he could do that, and these kinds of musicians like Herbie and Rick and the others could immediately realise, okay, we can make that sound. We can. And they would play it right away. There'd be no hesitation. And then, and then Mick would say, okay, yes or no, up or down. So you have this mixed set of creators. They're very broad. You've got people from the Led Zeppelin sound through to people who are doing very much a different sound, which of course leads us to David, but it also leads us to Iggy. There was nothing of that Led Zeppelin feeling about Iggy. Iggy was strictly about a very, very... In fact, we didn't find 
amongst all the musicians that we had at our disposal, we didn't find any of them that were able to follow Iggy musically. So we ended up importing the Stooges into England to do the Royal Power album. He had already brought James Williamson, who was his Mick Ronson, effectively. And James tried lots of different session players and eventually said, they're not going to play Iggy's music the way Iggy wants it. And so we brought Ron and Scott Ashton over. And so we made, essentially, not just an Iggy album, but a Stooges album, the ultimate Stooges album. Both Lou and Iggy became stars, solo stars, as a result of those two albums. Mott became, with their All the Young Dudes album, which we did in the same time frame, using primarily band members, again with Mick Ronson's involvement and David's lesser involvement. But that Mott the Hoople album made Mott the Hoople from a band that were on the verge of breaking up, or had actually broken up when we started working with them, who rejected the first song David offered them, I think it was Suffragette City. They didn't like that, especially Ian didn't like it, but were wild about all the young dudes, and which became, again, a huge hit, a major song, still used, still played, and kept the band together and ultimately led to them being a highly successful band. Ian got a solo career from it, although he'd be reluctant to admit it. And, of course, Mick Ralphs, who was always the best thing about the band musically, went off and did Bad Company, which in itself became a major act. So everybody won in our little group of people. Everybody won. Paul Buckmaster... Rick Wakeman went on to do good things. Didn't achieve the same kind of fame as they would if they'd been a Hendrix or a Page. Didn't get to that band place where they had a band that was really going to be remembered forever. Whereas here, we're looking at all the bands that everybody still remembers, whether it's the Yardbirds or whether it's the Small Faces or the Faces or the Who... They all will be around for a very long time. And they've been around for half a century already. So the fact that they're still here and they're still topical and their music's still being played makes it very important. They are always the ones behind the album, behind the artists, behind the band. Individually, without them, it wouldn't be possible for any of that music to have happened. Collectively, they made the music happen. And that's what we should remember about them. Another very good example of all those session players you mentioned who were very active in the UK music scene at the time and very influential is Klaus Vorman. He and Paul Buckmaster played together a lot. They were on Carly Simon's No Secrets album, which was also recorded at Trident that summer. You mentioned how studio players were often called on spontaneously to sit in on various sessions, and Mick Jagger is a very good example. He just happened to be in the studio while Carly was recording You're So Vain and contributed uncredited vocals on that track, which, like Walk on the Wild Side, has a classic bass introduction. (laughs) 
Klaus Vormann's bass introduction to Your So Vain, and Klaus played bass on dozens of sessions in the late 60s and early 70s. He was the bass player for Manfred Mann for three years, famously provided the cover art for the Beatles' Revolver album, and played with John, George and Ringo on their various solo projects. And Rono arranged for Klaus to join Herbie Flowers and play bass on Transformer as well. Yep, yep, Klaus, I do remember Klaus playing. In, a, in actual fact, um, Bob Fripp ended up playing on one of the later Bowie albums. You know, he was the old King Crimson guitar player. So, it, yes, it, it keeps on circulating. You almost, can't, you almost can't stop musicians from inviting other musicians to come and play. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, that, in a way, that's the same thing that happened with Queen. They had a band... But before Freddie showed up, they didn't have a band that was going anywhere. When Freddie showed up, all of a sudden they had a, a band that was going somewhere. And Freddie made the band, he made the band work, he made the band function. You could see the same thing with the Rolling Stones. When they, they weren't going anywhere, when they became the Rolling Stones, the combined impact of Charlie and Keith moved them forward in a way that they wouldn't have moved forward if it had just been Mick and Keith. They needed that, in Charlie's case, the jazz influence, and in Keith's case, the ability to relate jazz to blues that he was doing. And then, of course, you had, briefly, Brian, and, and Brian had his own, made his own contribution. But ultimately, it was Charlie and Keith who really made the band a working, functioning, musical entity. So it's quite interesting to see how it goes. Now, in today's world, if you want to recreate any of those albums, you'd need to take a lot more time and end up spending a lot more money. The particular environment of that time allowed you to make albums quickly, relatively cheaply, but what you needed was the ability to, A, hire the people, spend the money, and manage the acts and the band and the musicians over the time frame and doing that in the middle of Bowie's first successful UK tour think about that for a second that this is the same year the same moment that he gets to see Elvis Presley live almost nobody in this group of people we're talking about has met or seen Presley. A few of them have. Most of them don't until later. At that point in time, David's taken from a performance that he saw on an earlier trip to New York, where he saw Jim Bailey, who was a male-female impersonator, doing the Judy Garland song Over the Rainbow as Judy Garland. David realised then that it's okay that you could actually do a song that had been made famous by a woman as a man. You didn't have to pretend to be a woman, but you had to get the song. A year later, he sees Presley, and one of the things he sees Presley do is very often Presley will step back from the lip of the stage or the centre of the stage where he preferred to perform. He'll step back towards a particular musician and very often a vocalist remember he's got a lot of people on stage with him they're all backing him up they're all doing exactly what he's identifying needs to be done they're all well rehearsed and Presley will in a chorus or during a verse he will start singing with one of those people 
very close. David takes that information, he processes it, and it becomes a key factor in working with Ronson in the next round of performances. And most famously, you can see in that July 6th performance of Starman, on top of the pops, David drapes himself around. He exaggerates the Presley gesture. He doesn't just sidle up to or stride up to or get close to. He literally embraces Ronson as they sing the chorus together. And he points at the audience. He points at the microphone. He points at the camera. He knows exactly this is where his audience is watching him. And he points at them. And it's, I called you to tell you about this radio jive, this space cat, this star man. For David, that was probably a pivotal moment in his career. For the very first time, he was seen by a very dedicated audience. People who watched Top of the Pops were usually young, they were usually into the music of the day, and they were usually very influenced by what they saw and heard. For David, that was a moment when people who had never seen him perform, people who hadn't heard of him, people who weren't his fans, suddenly saw something that they would never otherwise see and became immediately fans and followers. And it was very noticeable that from that moment on, in the UK, David was unquestionably a star, a star man. Tony DeFries recalling Lou Reed's Transformer sessions from the summer of 1972. There are some great pieces of memorabilia from this period on the Main Man Label website, along with a huge collection of other historic documents, including articles, telexes, letters and production notes, many of them never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. It's a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.